All right, well, this morning we're going to talk about something that I think uh, doesn't get discussed that much in church. We don't, we don't talk that often about this topic, but it is an important topic, actually. It's the topic of spiritual dullness, spiritual dullness. And in chapter 12, if chapter 12 of Romans, we've been working through the book of Romans, and we've, we've gotten to chapter 12, uh, and we're working through this chapter very, very slowly, and it's important because in verses 9 through 13 of Romans chapter 12, we have a list of 13 commands that effectively summarize the Christian life. What's written in these 13 commands summarizes what it means to be a Christian. Uh, if you just walk through these, they become sort of a to-do list for Christians, the commands that a Christian ought to follow. And for each of us as Christians, we want to do the things that are pleasing to God. And all of these commands, if you've been following along with us, sort of string around the idea of love, a love for God and a love for others. And we would expect that, right? Because what are the first and greatest commandment and the second commandment are love God and love others. And so love for Jesus and love for others is the whole law. If we do those two things, we do the entire law. And so we have this idea of love as the centerpiece of the Christian life. And that's what flows through all of these in one sense or another. And this morning we're going to come to chapter 12, verse 11. Chapter 12, verse 11. And really this is, a, really is going to be a two-part sermon. And the reason for that is there's a lot to be said here. As, as my kids often say, how could you possibly say so much about so little? And it isn't just because I like the sound of my own voice. These are important things. If you just look at verse 11 with me, notice what Paul says. This is the next commandment in the order. He says, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And so those three sort of come together as a chunk, and what we're going to do is break them, and we're going to cover the first two this week, and then the last one next week. And so this title of the sermon this morning is Battling Spiritual Dullness, Part 1. Now, what's interesting here is that the word that's translated there, not lagging behind in diligence, that word for lagging behind is the Greek word for sluggard, a sluggard. We don't use that word very often these days, but it just means a lazy person, a sluggard. The Bible has a lot to say about sluggards, and none of it is complimentary, right? None of it is complimentary. In Proverbs 6, 6, Solomon says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise. He, he tells people who are lazy to look at ants, and, and God has built into the world work. And so we ought to look at that and grow. And in Proverbs 26, 13 through 16, Solomon says this, he says, the sluggard says, there is a lion in the road, a lion in the open square. In other words, it's too dangerous to go outside and work. I can't, right? So making something up to get out of work. Then he says, as the door turns on its hinges, so the sluggard turns on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand into the dish. He is weary of bringing it to his own mouth again. So all of these pictures of just laziness, it's not complimentary. Sluggardliness is a sin, and then he says, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. Just pride that leads to laziness. And this is obviously a very bleak picture of laziness. It's a sin, right? Whether it's physical or spiritual laziness, it is a serious sin. God is not pleased by laziness. He just isn't. And so Paul addresses this in our verse this morning, and what I want to do is just evaluate what spiritual laziness is and spiritual diligence, just understand that idea, spiritual diligence, and then think about the creeping dullness that comes into each of our Christian lives as we walk with Christ, and then to look at the solution to these things, which hopefully will propel us into next. Spiritual diligence, spiritual diligence. 
Now, if you notice the structure of this little, this little verse and these two phrases together, you see that the centerpiece of the whole thing is diligence. Paul says, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit. And so, what's the point? Well, diligence is ultimately the goal, and lagging behind is one option, and being fervent in spirit is the other, but both lead to diligence. If you see how that's structured... And we're going to talk about spiritual fervency in a minute here, but the, the centerpiece is diligence, a diligence about the Christian life. Paul doesn't want us to be slothful in our diligence, but instead through a fervency of the Spirit to be diligent. That's what he wants from us, a spiritual diligence to come out of us. And he's not talking about working hard at your job, though that's good. He's talking about spiritual diligence. And so I want to think through what is spiritual diligence, and that is point A on your outline if you're taking notes. What is spiritual diligence? The word in Greek, diligence, just means to hurry, uh, to make haste. If you remember the Christmas story from Luke chapter 1, verse 39, Mary hurries to her cousin Elizabeth's house. There's a rush involved with that. It's an intensity. It also means personal effort. Peter uses it in 2 Peter 1, 5 when he talks about applying the promises of God with diligence, that there's a personal labor, a personal effort. Now, there are some who would say that the Christian life is not about diligence. There isn't a diligence. It should be effortless. It should be simple. That's what the Christian life should look like. But Paul and Peter and the apostles don't say that. They don't want us to think of the Christian life as this sort of easy thing that we just sort of drift along in. That being a Christian includes labor and striving. It includes a diligence that has to be part and parcel with your spiritual life. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, right, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to God. And in order to please Him, we labor, we work hard for Jesus. We do work for Him. And so what is spiritual diligence? Well, at the end of the day, it is a spirit-empowered labor and effort exerted in a desire to please God. It is a spirit-empowered labor and effort exerted in a desire to please God. And there's a lot in that definition, but think about Paul for a minute, just as you're considering this. Paul was full of spiritual diligence, wasn't he? He says that over and over again in his epistles. It's really written everywhere. Paul's incredible diligence in the Spirit. He says in 1 Corinthians 15.10 that he labored more than all of them. Isn't that an amazing statement? Not all the Christians. He's talking about every single apostle. You look at all the apostles and Paul says, I worked harder than anybody. That's an amazing statement to make. And he says, it's not me. It's the grace of God that was working in me, but I worked harder than everybody. In 1 Timothy 4.10, Paul tells Timothy that he has his hope fixed on God, and because of that, he agonizes, he labors, and he strives for Christ. All of his hope is fixed on God and God's power to help him. And so the command that Paul is making here is a command that Paul felt. He, he knew what it meant to work hard, to not be slothful in our spiritual labor. But, but why does Paul need to give us this command? Why? That's the question we have to ask, and the answer is in point B here, slothful inclinations. Spiritual diligence is not our natural setting, is it? I mean, I've been a Christian quite some time, and, and the longer I'm a Christian, the more I realize how weak I am. Spiritual diligence is not my natural setting. I don't naturally run to spiritual diligence. The natural inclination of my heart, and I think of all of our hearts, is to just drift. We sort of drift, you know? We all... We all feel settled, you know, we're okay, right? We can rest. 
That's what our natural inclination does. Diligence, spiritual diligence, is a spiritual thing, but laziness and slothfulness is fleshly. It's fleshly. So I want to think about what does it look like to be spiritually slothful? What does it look like to be a spiritually slothful person? And I say this from my own heart. Again, this is something I experience. What does it look like when I'm feeling spiritually indolent? And I think there's at least three things here that that we can fall prey to. The first is a distance from the Word, a distance from the Word. When we are spiritually slothful, it creates a distance from the Word of God. We, we read less, <laughs> and pretty soon we, we read less and less and less, and the Bible sort of becomes a chore. It's, it's this thing that we have to do rather than our source of life. It stops being the thing that, that empowers us spiritually. It becomes something we just have to do because we, we know we should. But we sort of don't like it that much. We sort of become cold to it and sort of refuse to do it. And after a while, it sort of bleeds out into nothing. And we think, well, you know, I have a verse here or there that I read, or I, I memorized some when I was in my 20s, and I'll just hold on to those. Or whatever it is, it becomes something that we just sort of let go of, and we begin to drift. And we get more and more distant from the Scriptures. And that isn't just physical distance, right? It's not just that we don't pick up our Bible and read. It all also happens in our hearts, right? Our, our Scripture reading becomes cold, and we stop seeking to commune with Christ through the Word. We stop seeking Jesus in the Scriptures. We might read because we committed to a read through the Bible in a year program, but, but our hearts aren't actually connecting with Christ at that moment. We're, we're not actually experiencing the glory of Christ. We're not wanting to understand who God is. Instead, we're just doing it. We're sort of going through the motions. So it isn't about labor, per se. It's about your heart. It's a diligence about your heart. Are you close to the Word of God from your heart? Do you love it? Do you want to be in it? And the times when you don't want to be in it, are you diligent to be in it to battle that? So that's one area of spiritual sloth. There's a second one, distance in prayer. This might be one of the hardest ones, I think, for many of us. Prayer is a discipline. Prayer is a discipline. It's something that I think generally we have to labor to do. Satan is not pleased when we pray. And so things get in the way of prayer. Now, there are times, of course, in life when prayer is easy, right? You have times of trial, times of difficulty, pain in your life, struggles, circumstances are very difficult. And I get that. And, and there are certain special circumstances where it's easy to pray. But there are times when it's difficult, and Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 that we should pray without ceasing. Pray all the time. Especially just pray all the time. And I don't think he means like all the time, like while you're working. You know, when you're a brain surgeon, you should be praying while you're doing the brain surgery. No, we want our brain surgeon concentrating, right? What does he mean when he says pray without ceasing? He just means that that should be the natural inclination of our hearts, right? When he's, when he's done with the brain surgery, where does his heart immediately turn to? It turns to prayer. And that's what it means to pray without ceasing, when, there, when life gives us a moment of peace, we fill it with prayer. We commune with Christ, and that's what it is to pray without ceasing. It's a spiritual state of being, communing with God at all times in such a way that you can concentrate and then turn back again to God. But there's also a devotion to prayer, isn't there? There's a devotion to it. It's not just the natural sort of inclination of the Christian heart. There's a devotion to it. It's something that we must do. Paul, in fact, is going to say in verse 12 of this very chapter, be devoted to prayer. He's going to tell us to be devoted to it. 
And in Colossians chapter 4, he actually says something very similar. Verse 2, he says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Being alert. Now, you can imagine what, what it feels like to be alert. We know what that is, right? I, I tend to be one of those people that falls asleep when I drive. Uh, that's not a good thing. <laughs> It's not a good thing. And there is a diligence about keeping awake, right? I've tried everything. I, at one point, I was hitting myself in the face with red licorice, trying to stay awake. The best things for me are things like sunflower seeds, but I, I tend to fall asleep when I drive. There's a diligence that's needed to remain alert. And when Paul talks about being devoted to prayer, he's talking about that same diligence. There's a labor of the mind to be alert to what it is that we are praying for. And when we're not serious about it, when we're not diligent about it, what happens? We sort of, sort of relax into spiritual sloth. We relax. And when we are spiritually lethargic, prayer falls off, that devotion to prayer. Maybe we say, well, I still pray on my commute, and I pray here and there. But Paul isn't just talking about those things. Those are good. But Paul is talking about that sense of devotion to prayer. And so spiritual lethargy can produce a distance from prayer. And there's a third one here as well, a distance from the body. A lack of spiritual diligence leads to distance from the body of Christ. When we're not diligent about our spiritual lives, diligent with our hearts, we get distant from the church. Now, why is that? Why is that? Well, because being part of the body of Christ takes work, doesn't it? It takes work. Now, whether you're online right now or sitting here, you got up this morning. You got dressed in some capacity. You brought yourself here. Or you turned on the TV so that you could do this. There's effort that's involved with that. You, you get up and you get yourself into the position of being with the church. It's hard. It takes work. And the same is true of care group, isn't it? I mean, we all know this when we're going to go to care group and you get home from work and you're scarfing down food and just like trying to get back out the door again and wrangle children, get them all in the car so you can get to care group. It's work, it's labor. And it's also true of Christian relationships. That's the same idea, right? What happens in Christian relationships? There's a labor that's involved in caring for others and getting to know them in serving them and being part of the body. There's work that's built into those things. Spiritual sloth makes us distant from all of them. Church can be easy to miss. It's not a problem. I just miss a week. It's not a big deal. He just keeps going through Romans 12. He'll be there for the rest of my life anyway. It's easy that make, to make care group an afterthought. You think, well, I mean, it's just care group, right? It's easy to say, well, relationships are, are too much work. I, I, I don't want to labor over those things. I, I'm busy watching shows or doing something else. All of these things are signs that our hearts are spiritually slothful, spiritually slothful. But what causes that spiritual sloth? What's the root cause of that? What makes us slothful? That's what we need to get at, right? If we're going to fix it, I can't just tell you, well, be diligent. Because you might say, you might leave and say, well, that's good. I, I want to be spiritually diligent. But what will happen very quickly, right? Uh, the natural inclination of our flesh will drag us back down again. And so just saying be diligent isn't enough. How, where does it come from? We need to get at the root underneath the dandelion of spiritual indolence. And this is point two on your outline, the creeping chill. The creeping chill. I, I don't think anyone starts out their Christian life lazy. You remember when you got saved, when you first got saved? What did it feel like when you first got saved? It was glorious, wasn't it? You, you, you saw the glory of Christ. You understood the beauty of the gospel. Your soul was just caught up into Jesus, and you, you were amazed by him. 
And during that time, there's just this passion about the word, a passion about prayer, passion about fellowship. You were at every single church event. You had a prayer journal. You'd read through the Bible in four months. All of it was just fun for you. You loved it. You're excited for those things. But then time passes, doesn't it? And, and the chill begins. There's this creeping chill creeps into us and a dullness that slowly encroaches into our hearts and makes us less and less and less and less warm for Jesus. We become more and more lukewarm and soon we're complacent. So what causes this? What causes this? Well, I think there's at least three things. There's many things that could, but I want to look at three. The first one is under point A, unconfessed sin. Unconfessed sin. Now, the first thing, and I think the most common that causes this, is a lack of confession of sin. When we hold on to sin, when we have sin in our hearts that hasn't been dealt with biblically, what happens to us spiritually? Well, we don't want to come close to God. Why? Because it stings to get close to God when we're holding on to sin, doesn't it? It hurts us. God's holiness stings us with guilt because we know deep down it's not real. Deep down, we're not actually who we say we are because we're holding on to that sin. And so we get more and more cold and more and more distant and things about God start to become like fairy tale-ish and unreal and it starts to be distant from us and that sin remains in our hearts but we grow more and more and more spiritually distant. We still sort of put on a good face but it's not real. But what happens when we confess that sin? When we confess it, we acknowledge it, we forsake it, and we discover that Jesus died for our sins, the opposite happens, doesn't it? The exact opposite happens in our hearts when we do that. We run to God. We run to God because we know that He loves us. We want to be with Him. So when sin is confessed and honestly acknowledged, it reignites our hearts for Christ. And when I say confessed, what does it look like to confess a sin? What does it look like to confess a sin? I think there's two things. The first is that there's a genuine acknowledgement that I have sinned against God. A genuine acknowledgement that I have sinned against God. I speak to God and I tell Him that I have sinned against Him. You guys remember the prodigal son, right? Remember the prodigal son, Luke 15? Prodigal son, he goes off and he sins and he comes back and he rehearses what he's going to say to his father. And he gets to his dad, and in verse 21, you have this confession of his sin to his father. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's confession of sin. Father in heaven, I have sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I confess to you that my sin is heinous against you, and this is the specific ways that I have sinned. True repentance has to start with God. But second, and this is important, repentance deals with the one we've sinned against. Repentance deals with the one we've sinned against. If I've sinned against someone, I need to repent to them. If I get angry at my children, I need to repent to them. Not just to God. It's good to repent to God. I should. My sin was ultimately against God, but then I need to repent to them. If I fail as a husband in some way, I need to repent to Alyssa. If I've, if I've failed as a co-elder in our church, I need to repent to the other elders. I need to repent to the people that I've sinned against. And the list goes on. When you've sinned, repentance is not only to God. Repentance is also to those to, against whom we've sinned. So confession is to God and to those who we've sinned against. And if we have unconfessed sin, 
If we have unconfessed sin that we're cherishing in our heart, even if we say, well, I confessed it to God, but you haven't confessed it to another person, the person that you've sinned against, your heart will grow spiritually cold and increasingly distant from God. Spiritual dullness comes from unconfessed sin. There's a couple more. Look at point B with me, mundanity and pride. Mundanity and pride. Now, again, in a sense, this can be an unconfessed sin, right? Pride is sin, and so pride is unconfessed. It is the same category, but I think it's more specific. Pride about our knowledge, familiarity with the things of God, it can lead to a distance between us and God. It's a deep issue. The longer we become, we've been Christians, the more we're aware of theological things, right? There's really not new things, per se, that we're learning, right? We've more or less thought through a lot of theological things. We're aware. We've been a Christian for quite some time. Our knowledge of the Bible has increased. And what begins to happen is that familiarity can breed contempt, can't it? We've encountered a large percentage of theology. We've heard the gospel conservatively a thousand times, right? Some of you have been Christians for decades. You've heard the gospel over and over again. And after a while, we can begin to think, we've got it. I don't need to hear that again. I know this stuff. No one is going to preach the gospel to me in a way that I've never heard before. I've already heard it. But what's at the root of that? That's just pride, isn't it? Like at its core, that's pride. We've reduced Christianity to knowledge. That's a huge problem. It's not that your knowledge has to continue to increase. It is that you know the grace of God. Not just in your head, but in your soul. You are aware of the realities of the gospel. It's not about just learning something new. Oh yeah, I've got the gospel. Now tell me something that I don't know. Instead, what should we be saying when we hear these things? We should be saying, man, I am such a sinner. I'm such a sinner. I need this. I've sinned so often and so greatly. Tell me about the death of Christ for me. Tell me about his resurrection. Tell me about his love for me right now. Preach the gospel to me. That's what we need to be saying, not, yeah, yeah, I've got that. Let's talk about some theological complexity. When pride makes the gospel mundane, we will drift quickly, won't we? We will grow spiritually slothful. And so there's unconfessed sin, there's mundanity and pride, and the third is worldliness. This is point C. I think the third area where our hearts are in great danger, in great danger to allow spiritual sloth in is when we let worldliness take over our souls. Of course, again, this is another unconfessed sin, but I think it's so easy and it looks so innocuous to us. There's just so simple to quit quietly just drift into worldliness and let it sort of suck all the life out of our Christian life. Why is that? Because the world brings satisfaction, doesn't it? Doesn't it? The world brings a taste of satisfaction. You know, you get new clothes, you get a new car, you're looking forward to retirement or you get there, you, you get this vacation that you've been planning. You have family time. Your pension grows. You have relaxation that you've been planning for and you get. And all of those things offer us little bites of happiness, little pieces of happiness. And we can quietly allow all those things in the world to choke out our Christian life. Remember the parable of the soils? (laughs) 
What was the third soil? The third soil is choked out by the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of the world. Listen, everything around us is trying to choke our Christian life. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. Cars, clothes, houses, everything. All of that is fine. God has given it to us to enjoy, and yet it is there choking our spiritual life out, pulling us down into slothfulness, laziness, spiritual complacency. We have to see just how pernicious and just how vile that sin is. We need to understand that Satan would like nothing better than to have a bunch of really happy, really comfortable, suburbanite Christians who are all about us and slothful in our spiritual lives. That's so scary. It's so scary. So we've seen what spiritual diligence is and and we've seen what spiritual sloth looks like and maybe some causes for it, right? Unconfessed sin, mundanity and pride in the world can choke out the spiritual fervency of our soul. So what do we do to get out of this? How do we cure it? This is point three, spiritual fire, spiritual fire. Now, if you could look back again in Romans chapter 12, look at verse 11. Paul says, not lagging behind in diligence, not slothful in diligence, but fervent in spirit. Fervent in spirit. That word fervent is a very graphic word. It, it comes from, in Greek to mean the word to boil. Something's boiling. You put a pot of water on the stove and you let it boil and it's bubbling up, right? And if you let it bubble and you get to a full rolling boil, it's splashing out of the pan. I'm, I do this consistently, dirty the whole kitchen. Uh, it's just bubbling, right? There's this boiling. It can also mean to be on fire, to be on fire. You have this idea of burning, bubbling, fervency. Paul wants there to be a spiritual boiling in us, a spiritual fire inside of us. So he says, fervent in spirit. But here's a question. When it says spirit, does that mean our spirit, like a little s, or the Holy Spirit, a big S? Fervent in spirit. Us or the Holy Spirit? I think the answer is both. Look at point A. God's spirit and your spirit. Your spiritual fervency, your boiling heat of spiritual life in your heart is the direct result of the spirit of God in your life. It's the Spirit of God working inside of you to produce this in you. And so when Paul commands us to be fervent in spirit, he's asking for us to do something that the Spirit of God does in us. Isn't that fascinating? He's he's asking for us to do something that we can't do apart from the Spirit of God. So what's happening there? How does that work? How can he tell me to do something that the Spirit has to do in me? Well, really, that's the same question as asking, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit, isn't it? It's the exact same question. How can I have spiritual fervency? It's the Holy Spirit in me. What produces in us a spiritual intensity, a spiritual fire? What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? The way we want to answer that question is from the book of Romans. Look back in Romans chapter 8. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? The Spirit of God is doing something all the time in us. He's doing something all the time in us. Look at verse 14. He says, For all 
who are being led by the Spirit of God. These are sons of God. So if you're being led by the Spirit, if you have the Spirit of God in you, you're a child of God. Verse 15, he says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. In other words, be diligent or I'm going to get you, right? That's not the spirit that we have. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. What is the Spirit doing at all times in your heart? If you're a Christian this morning, what is the Spirit doing inside of you at all times? He is witnessing to you. (laughs) He's testifying to you. What is he saying to you? What is he saying? He's saying, you are a child of God. You're a child of the God who created the universe. You're his child. That's what the Spirit is doing inside of you at all times. He's telling you that over and over and over and over again. That's what he wants you to hear. So what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? It means to listen to hear and to believe what the Spirit is saying to you. You know this, right? When we believe what the Spirit is telling us, when we believe that we are children of the God who created the universe, when we believe that we are completely forgiven of all of our sins through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when you really believe that, every sin you've ever committed, all those secret dark places in your heart that you would want no one to know about, washed totally clean by the death of Christ for you. When you believe that, what happens inside of you? When you believe that there is no condemnation for you because of Christ, God is not frowning on you, and your suffering is not by accident. And when you believe that Christ dwells in you now with power, when you believe that, what happens inside of you? What happens to you? If you're a Christian, you start on fire, You're on fire. You become passionate about Christ. When faith engages with what the Spirit is constantly saying to you, you boil. (laughs) You boil. Spiritual diligence flows directly out of that heart. Faith engaging with the truth of who Christ is for us and that we are the children of the living God. That's the only way to be spiritually diligent. I could send you home and say, well, work harder. <laughs> we'll all break. <laughs> we'll all give up, right? I've tried many times. Trust me, I've tried so hard to work harder, and quickly we burn out, right? But if I send you home and say, believe what the Spirit is telling you, what does Paul say? He says, fervent in your spirit. What will happen to you? You will begin to boil you will begin to boil because it's not you, it's the Spirit of God who is testifying in you. It will change you. And the beauty of this is that it corrects our motives, doesn't it? It corrects our motives. Motives are such a tricky thing. It's so hard to know why we do things, isn't it? It's so tough to get at our motives. It's so easy to have bad motives. But this fixes all of it. This is point B here, living for Jesus. The danger with spiritual diligence is that we can have terribly, terribly wrong motives. We can have terribly wrong motives. I can be a diligent pastor for the praise of people. I can be a diligent pastor for the praise of man. I can read and study the Bible so that people think I'm wise. I can serve at church so that people think I'm a servant. 
I can serve at church so that God won't be mad at me. And that's just a few. That's just a few. Those motives are in our hearts constantly. John Calvin said the human heart is an idle factory. It's producing all of those things all the time. How do I correct my motives? How can I possibly do that? But friends, listen, the only way to fix us, the only way to fix our motives, and the only way for spiritual diligence to be truly spiritual is to let Jesus correct us. Jesus has to fix us from the inside out. I want to show you this. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Chris read this for us this morning. If you look at verses 14 and 15, look what Paul says. This is a beautiful text. He says, the love of Christ controls us. That word for control is constrain, to hem in, to, to press down around. It's to press down on us. What will constrain my motives? What constrains me so that I will be diligent for Christ? What changes me on the inside so that I will serve him? What can possibly do that? And Paul says, what? The love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Listen, we're dead, men and women, right? If we're Christians, we're dead. Jesus died for us, we're dead. Why? So that, verse 15, so he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. No longer live for themselves. No longer lazy. No longer spiritually slothful. But what? But for him who died and rose again on their behalf. What makes us live for Jesus? It's not because you want to, though that's a good motive. It's not because you try hard. The only thing that will constrain your soul so that you will live for Christ is the love of Jesus for you. The gospel, the spirit of God telling us that we are the children of God, all that we've talked about, that love for, from Christ produces a love for Christ. And when we love Christ, what will we do? We'll be diligent, won't we? We'll labor. We'll fight the creeping chill that comes over us. And we will live for others, not because we want their praise, but because we love Jesus, <laughs> because he's awesome, and because Jesus loves us. So ultimately, spiritual diligence is rooted in love for Jesus. And that comes from faith in his love for us. So let me just ask you, are you spiritually diligent? <laughs> Are you spiritually diligent? If not, listen. Acknowledge that to God. Tell him. I'm not spiritually, I'm spiritually lazy, Lord. I, you know my heart. You see inside of me in a way that no one else knows. You see my thoughts, Lord. You know me, and you know I'm spiritually lazy. Confess it to him. And then remind yourself of what the Spirit is telling you, even this morning. <laughs> remind yourself that you're a child of God. Believe the love of Christ for you. Trust it. And then turn from that laziness and draw close to the Word of God. Draw close to prayer. Be diligent, not so that God loves you, but why? Because God loves you. And then what? Thank and praise God as you do that. 
The more we draw near to God, the more he draws near to us. Doesn't he? And so spiritual diligence is really just a fruit of faith. Believing what it is that the Spirit tells us. Resting in, his finished, in the finished work of Christ and trusting him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we know our hearts. Lord, we know we are prone, Lord, to dullness. It's easy for us to become indolent, Lord, to lag behind in diligence. It's easy for us to let the fervency of the Spirit be quenched in us, Lord, to just relax and not worry about it. Lord, this doesn't please you. Lord, we, Lord, we need fresh fire from you, Lord. We want to be boiling in our spirits. Lord, we know we cannot produce this in our own flesh. Lord, we can't manufacture spiritual life. But if we could, we would do it. But we can't. Lord, what we need is to listen to your spirit. Lord, we need to remind ourselves again of what you've done for us. Lord, that all of our spiritual laziness has been paid for once and for all at the cross. Lord, that all of our weaknesses all of our failings have been covered by the blood of Christ. Lord, we need to remind ourselves that we are your children. Lord, that nothing can ever separate us from the love that you have for us in Christ. Lord, to rest in that reality, knowing our massive weakness. Lord, we must trust these things, confess our sin to you, and then turn. Lord, we thank you that even when we are so weak. Lord, your blood cleanses us from all sin. Lord, I pray that because of that, you would cause us to be serious about our spiritual lives or to be intense, fervent, boiling people for Christ. Lord, we pray these things not for our own glory, Lord, not so that anyone would think that we are holy. Lord, for the sake of Christ and for his honor. Lord, he is worth our whole lives. Lord, make us about Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.